0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, this morning we are starting what will probably end up being about a year-long journey uh, through the book of of Acts, just preaching passage by passage through that book. And the reason I chose Acts as the next book for us to go through is actually related to COVID, Uh, because uh, for a lengthy period of time during COVID, uh, virtually everything our church did uh, came to a screeching halt. Uh, Our church was basically reduced to a once a week Facebook video for several months, and thankfully, though, the Lord did provide us with the opportunity to begin meeting again this past June. So I guess it's been about a year now, almost exactly. But even throughout this past year, things, of course, haven't really been entirely normal. Um, it seems like there's just been a mentality, really wherever we go, of distance. And I guess a bit of awkwardness that characterizes our social interactions. And I am thankful now that we do finally seem to be gradually coming out of that with the vaccine now widely available and the withdrawal of mask requirements for many of us and things like that. So what I believe that we as a church need the most right now is essentially to learn to walk again. Kind of like when someone's in a bad car accident. A lot of times when someone's in an accident like that, they will at least temporarily lose the ability to walk. And so what they need after their injuries have been sufficiently tended to and they've begun to recover, what what they need is physical therapy to essentially teach them how to walk all over again. And that's sort of where I see our church being at right now. Uh, We've had several months of no face-to-face interaction, followed by about a year of interactions that have been hindered in various ways. And so what we now need is to learn to walk again when it comes to ministry to one another, and especially to our outreach to those outside the church. I mean, if there's any area in which we really need help, I believe it's in reorienting our lives around the mission that Jesus has given to us. And of course, that begins with us just having regular gospel conversations with the people that God puts into our lives. And it's my hope that studying the book of Acts passage by passage will be very helpful to us in that. Now, one thing that's helpful whenever you first approach a book of the Bible is to know a little bit about the background of that book. And it's pretty nice for us today, since as we look at Acts chapter one, a lot of that background information is conveniently supplied for us in the first three verses. So let's look at Acts one, verses one through three. In the first book O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, what these verses don't tell you is that this book was written by a guy named Luke, Luke was a physician and also a close associate and frequent traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And we see here that he's writing Acts as volume two, actually, of a two-volume series. So notice the reference in verse one to the first book, which is what we, of course, call the Gospel of Luke. So understand that even though in our Bibles today, there's a book in between Luke and Acts, right? the Gospel of John is right there, but really Luke and Acts actually belong together as volumes one and two of the same series. And not only that, but we see in verse one that Luke addresses this volume to a guy who has a great name, Theophilus. Gotta love that. Now, we don't know for sure, but Theophilus was probably somebody that luke was trying to persuade to become a christian or perhaps someone who had recently converted to christianity that luke was trying to teach and he was in all likelihood a high-ranking roman official since at the beginning of the gospel of luke luke actually refers to him as most excellent theophilus (coughs) excuse me and the way these volumes are organized is that the gospel of Luke focuses on the earthly ministry of Jesus, uh, namely his life and death and resurrection. So it teaches us how Jesus entered this world as a real human being. Like he became one of us and he lived a life of sinless perfection. Nobody in the entire history of the world has ever done that before. But Jesus did. He walked every day of his life in perfect righteousness. And then he died on the cross. Not for any sins that he had committed, of course, but for our sins. Jesus endured the punishment that you and I deserve to suffer. And ever since he did that, and then resurrected from the dead three days later... This world has never been the same because now instead of facing God's condemnation, we can experience God's salvation, meaning that we can be saved from our sins through faith in Jesus as we put our trust in him. And So that's the gospel of Luke. And then Acts picks up where Luke leaves off. Acts focuses on the early church, both how the church was established and how it grew. And here in Acts chapter 1, we find Jesus speaking with his followers after he had risen from the dead. And he tells them, skipping ahead here to to verse 8, "...but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem." in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's the central verse of this passage. And actually, the central verse of the entire book of Acts. Because it's in this one verse here that we find uh, really an outline of the entire book. So first, in the book of Acts, we see Jesus' followers being witnesses there in Jerusalem which was the city where Christianity started. That's chapters 1 through 7. And then we find the early Christians bearing witness in Judea and Samaria, which were the regions surrounding Jerusalem, in chapters 8 through 12. And then lastly, we follow the Apostle Paul as he bears witness about Jesus to the end of the earth in chapters 13 through 28. So that's what the whole book is about, the spread of the gospel. And we see Jesus announcing that mission to his disciples here in Acts 1. Now, just imagine for a moment how overwhelming his disciples must have felt, or how overwhelming it must have been to his disciples as Jesus just laid this huge mission on them. Because remember, these were just ordinary people, right? And so how it must have felt for them to have this on them of spreading the gospel, leading a movement that would impact the entire world. I think it would probably feel a lot like if someone came up to me and handed me a scalpel and told me to perform brain surgery on somebody and then walked away, right? I wouldn't have a clue what to do. Performing brain surgery is way beyond my ability. So I would feel totally overwhelmed. And I imagine that's a lot how Jesus' disciples must have felt in this passage. Yet that's why Jesus doesn't just give them a mission. He also gives them a promise. And that promise can be summed up in three words the Holy Spirit. So that's what this passage is about. The main idea of this passage is that Jesus gives his disciples both a mission and a promise. So let's start by looking at the promise. We find it first stated in verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, notice here what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't tell them that they have a mission and that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to help them with that mission and that they should just do the best they can until the Holy Spirit comes. No, he tells them, don't even try to do anything until the coming of the Holy Spirit. The text even says that he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Other translations say he commanded them. That's pretty strong. Yet that's how essential the Holy Spirit is for our gospel ministry. It's not even worth... Trying to accomplish our mission apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet, sadly enough, many Christians today don't seem to be very familiar with the Holy Spirit. I appreciate the comparison that J.I. Packer makes when he says that many Christians these days aren't really all that different from the disciples of John the Baptist, recorded in John chapter, or Acts chapter 19, where it says, or they themselves say, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, there that's a bit hyperbolic of a comparison to make, but I think there's still a little bit of truth in that. It seems like a lot of Christians, for all practical purposes at least, Live as though the Trinity consists of the Father and the Son and the Holy Bible. I mean, that is, they barely even know who the Holy Spirit is and how central His ministry is for the Christian life and mission. That's why Packer elsewhere refers to the Holy Spirit as the Cinderella of Christian doctrines. So you remember Cinderella, right? Neglected, overlooked, forgotten, unappreciated. That, according to Packer, is the way Christians often treat the Holy Spirit. Yet as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is central to everything that's happening here. The Holy Spirit is the one who's moving things forward every step of the way. The official full title of this book is the Acts of the Apostles, yet we're gonna see that a better title perhaps might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. That's how central the Holy Spirit is to everything that we see taking place. In Acts chapter two, for example, It's the Spirit who enables the apostles to speak in other languages and who empowers Peter for his famous sermon at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, it's the Spirit who empowers Peter to boldly testify about Jesus and about his mission to the Jewish religious leaders. Later in Acts 4, it's again the Spirit who enables the early Christian community to continue sharing the gospel even in the midst of persecution. In Acts chapter 6, it's being full of the Spirit that's considered a key qualification for serving as a deacon. In Acts 7, it's the Spirit who enables Stephen to boldly testify about Jesus to a hostile crowd and literally to keep preaching the gospel to his dying breath. In Acts 8, it's the Spirit who Guides Philip to initiate a conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch, which ultimately results in the eunuch's conversion. In Acts 9, it's the Spirit who enables Saul to regain his sight and gives him a totally different outlook on life, essentially changing him from Saul into Paul. In Acts 10, it's the Spirit who falls upon the first Gentile converts, making it clear to the Jewish Christians that the Gentiles are indeed legitimate. Followers of Jesus and therefore should be included in the Christian community, thus preventing a schism in the early church. In Acts 13, it's the Spirit who prompts the leaders of the church at Antioch to set apart Barnabas and Paul to become missionaries to the rest of the Roman Empire. And then throughout, Paul's missionary journeys throughout the rest of the book of Acts, it's the Spirit who continually shows him where he's supposed to go and what he's supposed to do, and who then empowers him, giving him the boldness and the, the wisdom to actually say those things. So you literally can't go two steps in the book of Acts without bumping into the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere. He's the one moving things forward every step of the way. As Packer correctly observes, were it not for the Holy Spirit, get this, there would be no gospel, no faith, no church, no Christianity in the world at all. And that applies just as much today as it ever has. I mean, brothers and sisters, were it not for the Holy Spirit, we might as well call it quits as a church. (laughs) Right? It wouldn't matter what kind of programs we had. It wouldn't matter how nice we managed to, to make this new building we purchased. It wouldn't matter how hard we were prepared to work at everything. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, all of our efforts all that we do would amount to nothing. As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, if we have not the spirit which Jesus promised, we cannot perform the commission which Jesus gave. Spurgeon then goes on to remind us of how impossible it is to convert even a single soul apart from the spirit's power. He observes that we can't even create a fly, much less a new heart in somebody. That's how radically dependent we are on the Holy Spirit for everything. And returning to our main passage, that's why Jesus tells his disciples not even to try, don't even bother trying to accomplish this mission until the Spirit comes. So that's the promise Jesus gives to His disciples. Yet, as we've said, He gives them not only a promise, but also a mission. And we find that mission in verses 6-8. through So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, looking at verse six, we see just how little Jesus' disciples understood of the mission that Jesus had for them. I mean, they ask him if he's at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So they apparently still thought Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus had imminent plans to overthrow the Roman government that that was oppressing them and to win a victory that that was a military victory, a political victory, and essentially to restore Israel to her former glory. And Jesus noticed he, he doesn't deny that the Father will bring that about in the future, But he makes it clear that that's not what they need to be thinking about right now. Their mission for the present is to be his witnesses. That word translated as witnesses, much like in English, really, is a courtroom term that refers to someone who testifies in a court of law. So like if you saw a crime take place, well, the authorities are going to want you to Testify or bear witness about what you've seen. And that's the mission Jesus gives his disciples here. He wants them to bear witness to his resurrection. And by extension to what they've experienced as a result of his resurrection. Not only that, but we see again that this mission is inseparable from the Holy Spirit. Jesus assures them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in that power, you will be my witnesses. It's the Spirit who empowers them for their witnessing ministry. And of course, the Spirit who also empowers us for our witnessing ministry. It's the Spirit, for example, who helps us see opportunities to share the gospel both in the course of ordinary conversation and and even just as we're thinking about the people that we know. Also, it's the Spirit who gives us the wisdom with what to say. Perhaps you've experienced that before, where an opportunity to share the gospel with someone presented itself to you in a conversation and you you just found yourself speaking in that conversation about Jesus in a way that was to be quite honest above your ability of what you'd naturally be able to do it's like someone was putting the perfect words in your mouth that's the Holy Spirit yet I believe that the chief way in which the Spirit empowers us for our witnessing ministry or at least the way that's emphasized the most in the phrase you will receive power is by giving us supernatural boldness. That's the primary idea, I believe the word power here refers to and what seems to be emphasized throughout the rest of the book of Acts as well. And guys, the reality is that we need this. Because I don't know about you, but I know that the biggest struggle I have with sharing the gospel with people is just worrying about what they're gonna think about me. What will they think when I turn the conversation toward Jesus? I appreciate the way Rico Tice describes it in his book, Honest Evangelism. He says that no, no matter how thoughtful and natural and sensitive and diplomatic you try to be in talking about Jesus and by the way we should be all of those things right? but no matter how much of those things you are he says there's always going to be what he calls a pain line there's going to be a moment in that conversation where things become a little uncomfortable and it takes straight up boldness to say what needs to be said because you can't share the gospel with giving at least some explanation. I'm not talking about going all fire and brimstone here, but you really can't share the gospel without mentioning something about things like sin and judgment and the need for repentance. And in case you haven't noticed, those things aren't exactly the most popular topics with people. And so there's always going to be this pain line that you have to cross whenever you share the gospel with someone. And crossing that pain line will require boldness from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, don't think that this is something unique either. Right? Don't think that this is the first time in modern history where sharing the gospel with someone might result in us being despised or ridiculed. Like, I'm aware that our country is moving in an increasingly secular direction. But understand that sharing the true biblical gospel has never been easy. Like Jesus says in John 3.19, darkness hates the light. It always has and always will. I was reading a bit about George Whitfield recently, a man whom God used mightily in a revival movement in the 1700s known as the First Great Awakening. Uh, Whitfield was perhaps one of the first, uh, what we might call these days, an international sensation. And you would think, perhaps, that back in the 1700s, people would be uh, perhaps more friendly to the gospel, or at least not openly hostile to it. But... It turns out that that wasn't the case at all. Now, much of Whitfield's ministry involved preaching in the open air, in fields, to crowds of thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of people. And again, some might assume that because of the times and because of his international fame, that Whitfield would be highly regarded wherever he went. And he was highly regarded by many. But understand that he was also highly despised by many others. It wasn't unusual, according to this biography, for people to throw dirt clots or even stones at him as he preached. Um, Also, they would bang drums at times during his sermons to try to drown him out. Uh, There's reports of also people driving cattle through the crowds of his listeners just in an attempt to create a disruption. And one time someone even climbed the tree. So Whitfield often would preach under a tree. Someone climbed the tree under which Whitfield was preaching and they began to urinate on him as he preached the gospel. Another time, Whitfield almost died because people in the crowd started throwing rocks at him. And one of those rocks was rather large and hit him in the temple. And it resulted in what he describes as a gore of blood so that he says he expected each breath to be his last. Thankfully, a surgeon was able to tend to him so that he ended up being okay. But the reason I share all that, I mean, even about a guy like Whiffy, I mean, if anyone was a celebrity, like it was this guy, right? But I share that just to make sure that we're not imagining these days that sharing the gospel has ever been easy. It's never been a walk in a park. There's always been a pain line. That's just part of the deal. As Whitfield himself famously stated, if you are going to walk with Jesus Christ, you're going to be opposed. In our days, and that's the 1700s, to be a true Christian is really to become a scandal. And yet Whitfield has said elsewhere, the more I am opposed, the more joy I feel. And dear friends, that joy and the boldness that Whitfield exhibited day after day after day, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives us an all consuming passion for God's glory so that we are ready to talk about Jesus regardless of the consequences. It's the Spirit that causes us to to care more about people's souls and their eternal destiny than we do about our social reputation and our comfort. It's the Spirit who, equally as important, puts joy in our hearts. So great that it just has to come out in our conversations with people. It's the Spirit who helps us overcome our pitiful, self absorbed cowardice and speak boldly about Jesus, even if we're not sure how it's going to be received. So ask the Holy Spirit. Like, really ask Him to fill you with that joy and that boldness. Then finally, notice the scope of the mission that Jesus gives to his disciples. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Of course, we already discussed how Jerusalem was the city where Christianity started. Judea and Samaria were the surrounding regions. And then this mission extends to the end of the earth. But just try to think about how radical this must have sounded to these early Christians. Now, it's true that the idea of God having a heart for the nations was present in the Old Testament. I mean, we read about that in the previous sermon series through Isaiah, right? It mentions the nations a good bit. But now... It's front and center. And in addition to that, there's also been a radical shift in methodology. Up until now, the nations were expected to, we might say, come and see. Whereas now, the directive is for Jesus' followers to go and tell. And not just to go on a one or two day journey, but to literally go to the farthest corners of this earth. As witnesses. And talk about getting out of your comfort zone. So what about you? Where is God calling you to get out of your comfort zone when it comes to spreading the gospel? What risks is he calling you to take? What conversations is he calling you to initiate? What outreach ministries might he be calling you to start? And could it even be that God is calling you to pack up your stuff and move to a different country as a cross-cultural missionary with the message about Jesus? Listen, there's no question. That if you're a Christian, God is calling you to use your life. To spend your life, not on the American dream, but on this this mission. He's calling you to spend it for the sake of the gospel. There's no question He's calling you to be a missionary somewhere, even if it's right here. The only questions are where is God calling you to live? And what does he want? Your missionary ministry. What does he want that to look like? You know, one of the things I've become increasingly convicted of recently is how insulated we are from risk. For example, several months ago, I came across this picture of a vintage playground uh, perhaps you've seen this before. It's been making its rounds on social media. Now i don 't exactly know when this is dated from. Uh, by the way, that kid is not falling he 's actually swinging on a swing. I want to clarify that, but I don't know when I don't know what the date is on this picture, I guess the, the early 1900s, but I mean just look at this. I mean, people uh, loving parents actually used to let their kids play) uh, on, on things like this. And if you, if you just do a Google image search for vintage playground, you'll see this, this wasn't just like some crazy thing that one you know, one rec director in one town got a bright idea to, to do. This was actually a pretty normal playground for back in that day. And so some of you moms are probably feeling your heart beat a little bit faster right now, just to the thought of your precious little ones playing on something like this. To be honest, mine kind of does as well. But it just goes to show us, I think what this picture shows us and our response to it Honestly, it's just how insulated from risk we have become. I mean, this is, uh, if you didn't live in the past 100 years, this would probably be considered rather normal, right? And and so, of course, my, my point here isn't that we should be letting our kids play on things like this. It's simply that we need to be very careful Not to let what can only be described, historically speaking, as an extreme aversion to risk. We can't let that keep us from being obedient to Jesus and from taking real risk, prayerfully taking calculated risks for the sake of of spreading the gospel to people who don't yet know Jesus. So again, I ask, what risks is God calling you to take? Is he perhaps even calling you to do something that would be viewed as reckless by some people, even in your own family, for the sake of the gospel? Or at least is he calling you to have a gospel conversation that might be a little bit risky with some people in your life? Acts 1-8 should be a challenge for us to step out of our comfort zone and to do what William Carey so famously said. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And if you know the story of William Carey, then you know that he didn't just say that. He lived it. Expect great things from God attempt great things for God and remember in all of this of course that you're not alone for those who are Christians you have the Holy Spirit and that means you already have everything you need to be a faithful and fruitful gospel witness You don't have to obtain a a certain level of Christian maturity before you're you're ready to be a witness, right? You don't have to get some sort of a certificate or go through some sort of a program or have a certain number of years of experience under your belt. The only thing you need is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. You are ready. Of course, training never hurts, right? But just understand, you are ready to be a witness for Jesus from day one of your Christian life. So I know that we've all been through COVID and that being a faithful gospel witness has been even more difficult during COVID than it usually is. But hopefully, again, just like a physical therapy patient, we as a church can learn to walk again with this. And hopefully Jesus words to his disciples here in Acts chapter 1 are a helpful reminder to us that this is why we're here. Notice that Jesus when he ascended into heaven and in Acts 1 he didn't take his disciples with them with him, right? He left them there for a purpose. And that's also why Jesus doesn't snatch us up to heaven the, the moment we become a Christian. He's left us here so that we can share with the world about the joy and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The way he's changed our lives and the way he can change their lives as well.